This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. At a get-out-the-vote rally in Boulder last week, U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont made a statement. Today in America, as all of you know, we have a corrupt campaign system which allows billionaires to buy elections. Ironically, perhaps, one of the candidates Sanders was stumping for in Colorado was Congressman Jared Polis. The Democratic candidate for governor has spent $22 million of his own money on his campaign against Republican Walker Stapleton. Figures like that led a pair of former state lawmakers to sponsor Amendment 75, which voters are deciding on this election. It attempts to even the playing field in Colorado. We're going to hear the pros and cons. Former state Senator Greg Brophy is a proponent. Welcome to the program. Hi. And Amanda Gonzalez is leader of Common Cause, a nonpartisan organization that's fighting the measure. Hi, Amanda. Hi. Thanks for having me. I want to say that Jared Polis isn't the only candidate in Colorado who has spent big money this election cycle. Victor Mitchell, who lost the Republican gubernatorial primary, loaned his campaign $3 million, while Walker Stapleton has spent $1 million. Greg Brophy, tell us what... Amendment 75 would do, why you think it's the right answer in light of what some may consider excessive campaign spending. Well, Amendment 75 seeks to close this thing that the Denver Post called a millionaire loophole that was created in 2002 when when Common Cause ran an initiative that amended our Constitution establishing campaign finance laws in Colorado. And we're seeing the fruits of that now, that, that these new laws... Uh, that established the second lowest campaign uh, donation limit in the country for statewide offices in Colorado, give millionaires who can spend 20 or $30 million a tremendous advantage over regular people who have to raise their money to run for office. So that you, this would raise those limits for the other candidates in the race. Explain the mechanics of 75. It would actually raise the limits for everybody in the race. If someone tries to purchase an election by putting a million or more of his or her own money into the race, and it would lift the finance limits from the current very low level of $1,150 per donation to what would be about equal to the national average of $5,619, we'd raise it to $5,750. So to be clear, if someone spends a million dollars or more on their own campaign, the limits go up for everyone in the race in terms of individual donations. That's correct. Yes, it has to be for everyone in the race or it would be unconstitutional. That is to say, even the millionaire in this case would benefit from those increased limits. Yes, indeed. Okay. Does this apply to the primary, to the general, both one it would, it would apply to all, every candidate in the race at the time that the trigger occurs. So in, okay. in 2016, Vic Mitchell, as you mentioned in the opening, would have triggered this for everybody in the race when he put $3 million in. This is for statewide office only. Is that correct? Not congressional districts, for instance? Correct. Okay. Uh, well, what do you object to most, would you say, Amanda, uh, in this <laughs> proposal? Yeah. So Colorado, uh, as Greg mentioned, really led the way in reducing our campaign contribution limits. And we think that the solution to the corrupting influence of money in politics is not more money in politics. And what this would effectively do is quintuple the donation limits that uh, Coloradans can give. Why is that an issue? That is to say, if you are trying to even the playing field, at least you're making it more competitive. 
Well, I, I don't think that most people would think that leveling the playing field would include increasing contributions that the so-called millionaire candidate can receive, right? That we're also increasing the contributions that that person could take in. Furthermore, most Coloradans don't have an additional $5,000 in their budget every uh, election cycle to give to candidates. Most people actually donate less than $250 to candidates. And so what we think this would do would just increase the amount of money that wealthy people will be contributing will be contributing to um, elected officials. Yeah, let's do the math once again. So the current maximum a supporter can contribute is $1,150. If Amendment 75 passes and someone donates a million dollars to their campaign, makes that uh, sort of self-funded donation, that ratchets up to $5,750. And, and you think that still... Uh, puts rich influencers in the race over everyday folk. Is that what I hear you saying, Amanda? Yeah. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't have an extra $5,000 that I can give to people running for office. And most Coloradans don't either. I want the voices of everyday people to be heard in elections. And I think this is just going to increase the corruption in our elections. What would you say, Greg Brophy, to some of what you've heard there from Amanda? Well, well, I would say this, that we, we are supposed to be having an election and not an auction. And if you have a, a system in place that makes it so that a person can come in and put $30 million into a race where everybody, where it's 30 million versus 4 million, that's just not fair. And I think that bothers most people in Colorado. They think that we should have fairness in elections and not this millionaire loophole that really does allow someone to buy the seat. Now, if you're one of those people who wanted to see Colorado have their first woman governor, you should be furious that this loophole allowed Jared Polis to buy the Democratic nomination for $11 million. I want to challenge a little bit this assertion that he has bought something. Uh, there are plenty of races in which big spenders have not won. I think primarily of Meg Whitman in California. It comes down still to people casting ballots in a primary. Uh, and it, are you saying, Greg Brophy, if, if you weren't wealthy, uh, if you were wealthy, that is, you wouldn't spend your own money on your campaign? I may. And, you know, I actually ran for governor. And I, I, bought, a, I bought a Powerball ticket while I was running for governor. And I said, boy, if I win this thing, man, I'm going to have 20 million to, to throw at this governor's race. So, of course, uh, I would. And I don't begrudge anybody their success or spending their own money it's on their campaign. It's funny because it sounds like you do. What I begrudge is that they have such a tremendous advantage over the rest of us trying to run for office. The, the most successful fundraiser under this existing regime was a sitting governor who raised $6 million. I do not believe in a state like Colorado, you can win a close election with six million versus 30 million. That's not fair. I think that strikes most people as unfair. Let's level this playing field. To what extent is this a personal crusade for you, Greg Brophy? I mean, as someone who has been a candidate, as someone who's been a state lawmaker? Well, I, I believe in good policy and I believe in fairness. And so if that makes it a personal crusade, well, then I'll run towards it. But I think you've been up against wealthy candidates yourself. I have. I have. When I was running in 2014, uh, one of my opponents dropped 800,000 into the race. Not quite a million, but pretty darn close. Okay. It's interesting because both candidates for governor, Jared Polis and Walker Stapleton, support Amendment 75. Here is what Polis said to us when we spoke with him in September. 
on the margins, uh, I think it improves things. But I would be clear, it doesn't really change the fact that uh, it puts too much influence in the hands of the wealthy and powerful. Um, this so, is fine. There's no harm in this initiative. Yeah. Um, other than that, it doesn't really address the core problem in campaign finance, which is that uh, the special interests are still favored. So Jared Bolas doesn't think Amendment 75 is enough to solve the issue, uh, but he has generally been in favor of it. Amanda Gonzalez, uh, if this isn't uh, the right first step, what do you think reform should look like? Yeah. So I think what we can all agree on is that we that everybody should have a voice in our democracy and that money shouldn't corrupt that. Right. So our campaign finance laws are really complicated. They're tough to understand. And it's kind of a rat's nest. Right. So what we need is comprehensive campaign finance reform, not this sort of piecemeal approach that doesn't actually uh, get rid of the corrupting influence of money in politics. What it does is just increase the amount of money that wealthy individuals can continue to give. Say more about that. It's a point you've brought up several times. What is it that you fear with that possibility? So a couple things. So Amendment 75 triggers these increased donations, right, that individuals can give five times as much as they can currently give any time a candidate contributes over a million dollars to their campaign, uh-huh. any time that they loan their campaign more than a million dollars, um, and any time that they direct or facilitate third parties to give a million dollars. And that's some pretty ambiguous language. So my first fear is that this is just going to happen throughout Colorado, that almost every statewide race is going to increase or have increased contribution limits of five times what they currently are. Um, I worry about a candidate loaning themselves a million dollars just so they can trigger uh, these increased contribution limits to themselves. And sort of work the system. Yeah. Um, And I just also worry about quid pro quo corruption, that right now our contribution limits are pretty low. And that's a good thing. That's something that Colorado voters wanted. And if I, as an individual, am handing a candidate five times as much as I'm currently allowed to give, I might have different expectations about what I'm going to get in return. I should say that in Denver, uh, there is two E on the ballot, which also has to do with campaign finance. I just wonder very quickly what you make of that. Yeah, so Colorado Common Cause is supportive of two E. And what it would do is create... uh, funding for candidates um, who aren't taking corporate money and who are only taking smaller donations. So if an individual in Denver contributes $50, there would be a fund that would match that contribution by nine to one, uh, which would allow, we think, those smaller contributions to uh, fund candidates that are grassroots, that are local, that individuals really support and want to see on the ballot. Okay, so that apparently looks more like what you'd like to see statewide, perhaps. Uh, respond to those concerns, Craig Brophy, that Amendment 75 could be could be played. Well, we already have a system that is being played. And, you know, as much as I appreciate my opponent's passion for keeping money out of politics, she has offered no solution to keeping someone from buying an election in the way that we're seeing right now. I mean, what what we see is we have the with the millionaire loophole, a candidate can purchase an Indy car while everybody else is stuck peddling a Flintstones car for the election. That's not fair. It's not right. We should close this millionaire loophole. 
it's interesting you keep calling it the millionaire loophole, but uh, isn't money a form of free speech? And if you've got the money to lend your own campaign, are, are you saying that you shouldn't be able to do that fundamentally? Is that a change you'd like to see? Oh, absolutely not. I think I think money is free speech. And if you've earned a billion dollars, you can spend it in any way you want to. Why do you refer to it as a loophole that incl- that implies almost something that should be closed? It is a loophole. And that's what the Denver Post called it back in 2002 when Common Cause put this into our Constitution. Thanks for being with us. We appreciate both of your time. You bet. You can say we're welcome. <laughs> thanks for having us. <laughs> or thanks. Al- always fun to come and talk with your audience. <laughs> you heard from Amanda Gonzalez, executive director of Common Cause, a nonpartisan organization that's against Amendment 75, which tries to even the playing field when there's a wealthy candidate in the race. Greg Brophy helped create 75. Proposition 112, the oil and gas setback measure, is one of the most debated, most divisive measures on Colorado's ballot this year. We've gotten a lot of email and social media posts from people on both sides of the issue. And today, in our regular feedback segment, Loud and Clear, we want to address some of the most asked questions amidst all those comments. CPR energy and environment reporter Grace Hood is back. Hi, Grace. Hey there. You've been answering questions for weeks now about Prop 112. This is certainly not the first time. That's right. So there are so many questions about fracking and oil and gas development. There's a large group of people who are really confused. They want to know more about fracking. Uh, There's also confusion about what Prop 112 would do and not do. So there's a web post that I wrote called Your Questions About Prop 112 answered. That's on our website. And as you know, I was here in Colorado Matters last week discussing those questions and answers. That generated a ton of responses from supporters and opponents of the measure, both sides really wondering, you know, hey, why did you include this report and not this other? Why were some arguments covered in the segment and not others? And, you know, it's really important to say that last week's segment was driven or, driven by listener questions. So the goal uh, really wasn't to cover the talking points from the sides. Let's quickly review the the basic premise of the measure. I mean, what is the current setback for oil and gas drilling in Colorado? And what would the new setback become if Prop 112 passes? So there's a range. Now, it's really focused on the distance between buildings and wells. So there's a 500 foot required distance between wells and homes and a thousand feet required for higher occupancy buildings like schools, apartments. So this would significantly increase the distance to 2,500 feet. That's a great big uh, great big deal larger. <laughs> yeah. And it would not apply to federal land, which makes up about one third of land in the state. Now, proponents say this is really needed for health and safety reasons, air quality, but also theoretically to keep homes away from potential future explosions. Those have happened in the past. Now, another way to look at this is that 2,500 feet is about a half a mile in terms of a setback. And, And to be clear, this setback isn't just to keep oil and gas drilling away from homes. Explain what's included in the setback requirement. Right. So there's another provision that that uh, adds so-called vulnerable areas. So this is gathering points like playgrounds, sports fields, parks, but also irrigation canals, reservoirs, intermittent streams, creeks. All of the Proposition 112 web posts that I've written link directly to the ballot language, so you can really read the entire list yourself. As we've made clear, Prop 112 uh, applies to new oil and gas drill operations, not existing ones. That's right. Yeah. If 112 passes, can local governments make the setbacks even farther? 
Theoretically, yes. There's kind of two provisions that would give local governments more control over oil and gas development. The first one is that cities and counties can impose a larger setback distance, a larger than a half mile. The second is that those governments could come up with other vulnerable areas not designated in the ballot language. So there is customizability inherent, I suppose, in 112. And that's an important thing to understand when you're voting on this. Potentially, yeah. Prop 112 has been more or less linked to Amendment 74 on the ballot, uh, which would allow property owners in Colorado to make financial claims if their property loses value because of government action. That naturally raises the question, what happens if voters approve both 112 and 74? Well, I think it would be an outstanding time to be a lawyer. In Colorado. <laughs> but, you know, it's worth pointing out that Amendment 74 protects mineral rights, but also a lot more. So we're talking uh, water rights, uh, private property, if there's any kind of devaluing government action. And that could include uh, larger oil and gas setbacks. But, you know, it could also include things like a city zoning d- decision or say a city changes a short term rental restrictions, puts limits on Airbnb. So as far as how those two measures interact, it's not not entirely known. Um, you know, there does appear to be some connection there. And uh, I spoke with an oil and gas attorney, and he thinks that companies would actually have a strong legal case without 74. He thinks that uh, the point here is that damages under 112 are so severe that protections under 74 wouldn't really be needed to get any money. The idea there being that 112 is some sort of taking inherently. That's right. yeah. yeah, very strong taking. So on the other side of the coin, I talked to an environmental lawyer. He tells me he thinks oil and uh, companies wouldn't have that strong of an argument hmm. because at its core, Prop 112 really frames the setback requirement in terms of protecting resident health and safety. And so there's a case in front of the Colorado Supreme Supreme Court that's really testing this legal argument. It's called the Martinez case. And we're going to hear uh, a ruling from the Colorado State Supreme Court here in the coming months. I see. So this is all a question of framing, whether this is about property, whether this is about health and environment, or perhaps it's a blend of the two. Yeah. I suppose that's why the lawyers would be well employed. That's right. Okay. Grace, thanks for being with us. Thank you. CPR Energy and Environment reporter Grace Hood with more insight into Prop 112, the oil and gas setback measure on this year's ballot. A quick follow-up to a story we brought you earlier this week about how coroners are elected. Although candidates often run as Democrats or Republicans, we learned that the job is largely nonpartisan and that experience often differentiates the candidates. I mean, it doesn't make any difference uh, on a death scene. I've never asked anybody or any family or anything else if they were ever party affiliated. I mean, that has nothing to do with it. Nothing does. No skin color, no nothing has anything to do with what you're doing on a corner scene. On Twitter, Democratic strategist Laura Chapin of Denver pointed us to an instance in 2013 when a coroner took a high-profile position that could be interpreted as political. The then-coroner of Arapahoe County, Michael Doberson, a Democrat, testified in favor of expanded background checks for firearms purchases and banning high-capacity magazines. Doberson had received bodies from the Aurora Theater shooting. He told a state House committee, hardly a week goes by when I don't see what a bullet can do to a human body. Okay, there's a problem facing Colorado high school sports. There aren't enough officials to referee games. And the biggest factor in the shortage? Well, CPR's Vic Vela reports, it's sitting in the stands. 
Imagine making a mistake at work and getting this response. Thundering boos. That's what football referees and baseball umpires have to deal with all the time. But some youth and high school officials get more than what they bargained for. I've seen a ref be tackled going off of a football field. We've seen a uh, 13-year-old boy attack and punch an official. I have witnessed an ump in a baseball game actually flee a game, basically chasing him out of the park. Those were spectators at a recent Strasburg High School football game in eastern Colorado. Corey Tiffany, Nick Dickens, and Michelle Woodard have all seen some terrible things referees have had to deal with at games across the state. Woodard is Strasburg High's athletic director. We had to escort some basketball officials off the floor because we had a parent waiting at the, at the um, door for them because they were so upset at possibly how they called the game, especially against their child. And some longtime high school refs like Dale Sanchez of Colorado Springs say it's taking a toll. And the problem has been that we have lost a lot of good officials because of that. And now high schools are dealing with a harsh reality, a referee shortage. The Colorado High School Activities Association reports that compared to eight years ago, there are nearly 100 fewer football referees, 200 fewer baseball umpires, and 221 fewer basketball refs. Tom Robinson is an associate commissioner for CHASA. What it means is is that... uh on a given night, and really on the prime night, you know, which is Friday night. That's uh, Friday night lights, right? That's high school football. That's when every high school in the nation wants to play football. That just means you, you, can't, you can't staff every game on that Friday. You just can't. And that means games are being moved to different days of the week because there just aren't enough referees. And it's a national problem, largely because refs are growing tired of all the grief. Barry Mano is the founder of the National Association of Sports Officials. Look, we're in a culture where it's a very loud culture. Things are at high volume. Uh, We have become less forgiving of each other. We have become, in some measure, less civil of each other. So if sports is life with the volume turned up, why in some measure are we surprised here? In a recent survey of more than 17,000 referees, 57% say sportsmanship is getting worse, largely because of angry parents and coaches, and nearly half say they have feared for their safety. And that ties into another problem. Referees aren't being paid much to deal with all this. Dale Sanchez again. The state of Colorado, my understanding, is one of the worst-paying states in the country. And for the amount of abuse that some of these people take, it's not worth it. And I think that that's where the shortage of officials is coming in. Referee pay varies in Colorado. Sanchez makes about 60 bucks a game. Chassa's Tom Robinson acknowledges that pay for Colorado sports officials ranks near the bottom in the nation. Referees are paid by schools. And Robinson says schools in Colorado have plenty of budget woes within the classroom. You know, we could be probably at the bottom of the list in funding for high schools as well. You can't just decide, well, I'm going to spend another $60,000 on officials. I can't do that. Chassa did announce recently that officials will get a few extra bucks per game over the next few years. And it's looking into more substantial raises down the road if schools agree. Outside of pay, they're trying to come up with creative strategies to recruit and retain officials. That's important because referees aren't getting any younger. Barry Mano from NASO says the average starting age for an official used to be 21. Today, it's 44. What it means 
means we're a very green industry. It means we're not bringing in younger people into this undertaking. And that, that raises the question, well, why not? Well, it goes back to what I said at the start of this interview. And that's sportsmanship. And parents like Jason Hall of Strasburg say they could be better at showing referees their appreciation. They're not making a ton of money. I don't think that, I think they all do the best that they can. And if there's errors, it's, it's you know, we're, we're all human. We all make mistakes. Referees and umpires hope fans remember that the next time they boo over balls and strikes. I'm Vic Vela, CPR News. It's a homecoming this weekend for Colorado's most famous fashion designer. Mondo Guerra premieres his new collection at Denver Fashion Week. Fans of the TV show Project Runway know all about Mondo's controversial second-place finish in Season 8 and his victory two years later in Project Runway All-Stars. I hear rhythm when I'm designing. The rhythm of the scissors, the sewing machine, it's almost music to me. By season, I really did think I was going to win. Gretchen, you are the winner of Project Runway. I was shocked that I didn't. Mondo was born and raised in Denver. He joins us from New York, and welcome back to the program. Hi. I understand your new collection is inspired by your teen years in Denver and, I guess, yes. 90s rave culture. Yes. Uh, yeah, I just turned 40 and living here in New York. You know, I moved back about three years ago and being an older gentleman, uh, <laughs> it's, 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 a different, it's a different place for me now. Um, and I was definitely missing uh, my, my going out, partying, ex- self-expression days. And so I really wanted to, um, uh, I don't you know, pull from my teen years when I was living the rave scene in Denver. It was like, it was my favorite part of my life. Your favorite part of life. How did you dress when you were a teenager and how did rave culture shape that? Well, you know, I I I, uh, I went to Denver School of the Arts. Um, I think I was the second graduating class from there, and I was a piano major. Um, and all through high school, I was just kind of very nerdy, normal uh, guy in the background. Um, and it wasn't until I was a senior and graduated that I really found a new way to express myself, a new creative outlet, and it was fashion. And uh, the rave, the rave scene there in Colorado, really, uh, it really encouraged me to express myself in different ways. And I found something that really worked for me. And uh, it, you know that that's the that's the story. I mean, maybe we should be clear about what a rave is, so people mm-hmm. should be picturing like a big sort of dance party, maybe in a place mm-hmm. you wouldn't necessarily think of for a dance it's not right. necessarily in a club it could be in a big industrial mm-hmm. space or something like that and and what well would, yeah go ahead well you know well it's different now like I, I think rave culture is completely different than what it was in the mid-90s especially in colorado you know we used to go party at places like the aslan theater and we also went to this abandoned uh bowling alley in boulder um, so there are very random places. There is also parties out in the mountains, you know, in the middle of a field somewhere. Um, and it was just it was just so awesome. And the thing that really encouraged me about the rave culture in Colorado, especially, was that it really was a sense of family. It was very supportive. It was very encouraging. And it made me want to do more. Well, now that we understand that culture, do help us 
connect it to the fashion. So, what's an example of something you would have worn when you went out? Well, I I I, I played a lot with the glue gun when I was, you know, barely <laughs> starting out. Yeah, those those costumes were kind of uh, wear once, air out for a couple of weeks, and you can wear it again. Um, so there was a lot of different costumes hanging off the porch in my backyard. Um, but you know, I think the first thing that I ever made going to a party, a rave, was a pair of faux fur pants, uh, lots of glitter, um, just anything you could find. You know, I mean, I was. 18, 19 years old. So I was definitely on a budget. It was, uh, it's really about just being resourceful and um, being innovative. And I think, you know, that really pushed me forward going into, you know, uh, Project Runway to really be able to handle challenges. Faux fur pants. I guess that's good if you're going to a rave in the middle of a field, maybe in winter. But if it's any other time of year and it's indoors, it sounds like a very warm dancing experience. So it, you know, it's but they always say fashion over comfort, right? So you just you 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 dealt with the elements for sure. Give us an example of how that rave culture connects to the current collection because Mondo Guerra, you have grown up in many ways and uh, you're not a pauper anymore. And, and I don't imagine that, <laughs> that the budget is quite as tight as it was in those uh-huh. days. How, how does it manifest in what you will debut in Denver for Fashion Week? Well, the thing about it is that, you know, uh, this new collection is definitely uh, from inspired by my teenage years in rave culture. Um, I was trying to make it on a 19-year-old rave budget that didn't happen. Um, (laughs) But uh, there's lots of color. You know, I think that when people think about myself and my brand, they automatically think about mix of prints. So there's a lot of prints. Um, I think the most exciting thing about this collection for me was really uh, uh, focusing on texture. So there's a lot of movement in the collection, which I rarely do. Um, what does that mean when you say there's a form. lot of movement in something? I mean, well, I, there, there's a lot. There's a lot of uh, ostrich feathers, and there's a lot of fringe. So you know, uh, walking down the runway, there's going to be a lot of movement and a lot of like ooh ah, kind of moments that I'm very excited for. Um, lots of orange and lots of lavender. That's kind of that kind of. Oh, and and it's a Western theme too. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, yeah, it's 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 a mess. <laughs> It's a mess. Well, I think that what I appreciate about your work, Mondo, is that it mm-hmm. is not matchy-matchy. And and I guess, like, when I dress myself, I'm always super matchy-matchy. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the notion of mixing patterns is not something I'm brave enough to do. Do, do you think well, that— Well, yeah, you yeah. know, I, I think that you're comfortable dressing matchy-matchy, you know, and I, and I encourage people to, you know, uh, explore and experiment with their— with their wardrobe. I think that's what makes it exciting. You know, I was thinking about it last night when I was getting ready for uh, getting dressed for Halloween. And uh, one of my roommates said, oh, do I wear it this way? And I thought to myself, yeah, that is a pair of pants. I guess you should put it on your legs, but you can put it anywhere else. Like you can wear it as a hat. (laughs) You can drape it over your shoulders, you know. I mean, those are extremes, but I think it's really fun to um, explore and really experiment with your wardrobe. What were you for Halloween? Oh, geez. Uh, so I was focusing on a lot of um, other costumes for clients. Okay. I was, I don't know. I just threw on a lot of black clothing and wore a mask. And that wore was a it. Mask. 
It was it was kind of a bust. It was a bust for Halloween for me. Uh, I wonder if we might talk about some of your advocacy. You announced mm-hmm. publicly on Project Runway that you are HIV positive, and mm-hmm. it even inspired one of your winning designs. And you have indeed become an advocate fighting stigma. I wanted to ask mm-hmm. you what misconception you most wish you could eliminate. Um, you know, it, that's... Thank you for that question. I think for me personally, from my experience and people approaching me, they believe that this disease is still a death sentence. And there are, you know, there are treatments out there that allow people like myself living with HIV to have very healthy and very happy lives. You know, it's just, it's it's a responsibility to stay on it and take care of yourself. But it's a responsibility that I love, you know, it, 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 it allows me to push harder and move faster. Hmm. A responsibility you love. Mm-hmm. I wonder if people might be surprised by that. In other words, the, the mm-hmm. in a way, the, the management d- daily yes. mm-hmm. of, of the disease is something that you take pride in. Yes. I mean, I take pride in it because I have support now. You know, I was silent for 10 years of my life, uh, not talking about my status uh, and not talking to my family about it. And once I was able to um, talk to them about it, it really allowed me to be my best self. And the most wonderful thing about it, you know, my family is fifth generation in North, North Denver. And now that they've been able to put a face to the disease, they've become advocates themselves because, you know, I'm their, I'm their, I'm their son, I'm their brother, I'm their cousin, I'm their nephew. And it's just been really amazing to see my family take a responsibility to be advocates themselves. And that's what really makes me proud and makes me want to do more. You mentioned Denver, how long your family has been here. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you come back to Denver from, from New York, uh, do you think mm-hmm. of this as like the fashion hinterlands? <laughs> uh, no, I don't. You know, here's the thing about it. I feel like when we talk about this Fashion Week, Denver Fashion Week, we talk about local fashion, local fashion designers. And I think that I think that that's not the right way to talk about it. I think that we're... Denver-based fashion designers. You know, I think that being a local designer kind of eliminates the fact that you're just as fabulous as somebody that's living in New York or living in London or in Paris or wherever you're at. Thanks for being with us, Mondo. Thank you. He's fashion designer Mondo Guerra, Denver born and raised and a winner of Project Runway All-Stars. He'll present his new collection at Denver Fashion Week on Sunday. Up next, musical gems from Colorado you may not have heard before. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hey, I'm Jesse Witten from Colorado Public Radio's Open Air and one of the hosts of our brand new podcast, The Playlist League. What I love about this is it takes something as beautifully subjective and personal as music and makes it into a battle royale. It's a music conversation, but done competitively as we draft playlists song by song according to a theme each month. So if you like music discovery, bloodthirsty competition, or even just a fun casual hang session with some fellow music lovers, check out the Playlist League from CPR's Open Air. 
It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Here's a musical quiz. What do these songs have in common? That was Paul Whiteman, The Astronauts, Tommy Bolin, Diane Rees, 16 Horsepower, and The Apples in Stereo. And they all have ties to Colorado. They're also featured in a new online archive called the Colorado Music Experience. G. Brown is the site's curator and executive director. He's a longtime music journalist and former director of the Colorado Music Hall of Fame. And G., welcome back to the program. How are you, Ryan? I'm doing well. Nice to see you. This new website has profiles of Colorado artists and venues, studios and record labels, and there are photos, videos, even a podcast of interviews you've done. What's your vision for the Colorado music experience? I was inspired, Ryan, by the American Film Institute's archives. Out in Hollywood, they sit down every member of their community and get them to tell their story. And I aspire to do the same thing for Colorado music history. So that is an archive of film and filmmakers. You wanted to do the same thing in a way for music to do it orally. Exactly. Exactly. You have profiles of some well-known Colorado artists for sure. The ones we often think of, John Denver, Judy Collins, Big Head Todd of the Monsters, Leftover Salmon, just to name a few. Uh, But we thought it would be fun to hear about some of the lesser known names. Why don't we start with guitarist Johnny Smith? but take it easy when you hear that. It's Moonlight in Vermont. Guitarist Johnny Smith with Stan Getz on saxophone. Mm -hmm. Smith was one of the country's top jazz guitarists in the 1940s and 50s, working in New York. And then in 1958, he moved to Colorado Springs, G. Brown. His wife had passed away. And I think the move to Colorado Springs Uh, was motivated in two ways. One, uh, Johnny, a gentleman, a family man, had two young children. When his wife passed away, his in-laws were here in Colorado, so relocated just so that he would have a great atmosphere to raise them in. Also, I think he was fed up with the New York music scene 
he not only was doing the studio recordings, uh, he was at Birdland and all of the incredible jazz clubs of the time. And uh, he never, he was too much of a gentleman to disparage it, but he said the best day of his life was when New York City was in the rearview mirror when he was driving out to Colorado. And Colorado Springs was in his windshield. Yes, and he opened a music store, Johnny Smith Music, and became an educator, gave lessons, lectured all over the country, and played some of the clubs in Denver with Neil Bridge, people of that ilk, and a true gentleman, passed away just a couple of years ago, but a forgotten legacy, and that's not right. I understand he was a big influence on another Colorado jazz guitarist who's quite well-known, Bill Frizzell been talking about Johnny Smith and his presence in Colorado. Okay, let's listen to another song. We'll talk about it on the other side. Lonely for you. Oh, Nice build there. This is Lonely For You from 1959. And the singer is Gary Stites. Tell us about Gary. Gary grew up in Wheat Ridge, Colorado. Uh, His father owned a filling station, gas station, at the corner of 38th and Wadsworth, I believe. Anyway, Gary formed Gary Stites and the Satellites in the post-Elvis era, as you allude to, 1957-1958. Played all the teen clubs. KIMN Radio was Denver's top 40 AM giant at the time, and they had connections with Carlton Records, run by Joe Carlton, who had been uh, instrumental at RCA Records when Elvis Presley got his run. Joe wanted to find his own Elvis, and the program director at KIMN called Gary, got him on the phone. He sang to Joe over the phone on a Friday. By Monday, he was in New York to record the song we're hearing, Lonely For You, that gradually scaled Conway Twitty, it's only make-believe type of knockoff. So wait, Gary Stites was going to be like the next Elvis. Well, for Joe Carlton uh-huh. on his label, Carlton Records. For your tender touch, please come through my heart's door. Help me write pills for precious little heard that line, help me write page four. While they were recording that song, Gary got confused with another song, Diary of Love, and slipped that line into the third verse, and they didn't fix it. They said, ah, no one will know. (laughs) Threw it out there anyway. Uh, It charted nationally. It was a top 40 hit. Uh, Gary followed it up. Uh, Never successfully, uh, by his own admission, it was the era of payola when disc jockeys were paid to play records, Mm. and they got a lot done, in Gary's words. But uh, he was out of the business within a matter of years. But he goes down as the first national act out of the Colorado music scene. My goodness. 
We are hearing about a new online archive that showcases Colorado musicians well-known and not. G. Brown is my guest. And uh, I'm guessing few people have heard about Tumbleweed Records, which was only around for a couple of years in the early 1970s. It was an independent label, I understand, based in an old house at 14th and Gilpin in Denver, started by a producer named Bill Simzik. Mm-hmm. Bill uh, a very noted producer. He got his start as a staff producer at ABC Records and got B.B. King in the studio to record a tune called The Thrill is Gone. <laughs> not, not bad. Uh, anyway, back in those days, if you had a hit, you could actually have your own label imprint. And after an earthquake uh, in California, Bill relocated to Colorado where he had spent some time. He and his partner, Larry Ray, got money from Gulf and Western, a million dollars in corporate dough, to do this independent label. And for two years, they made wonderful records that never really got any distribution or marketing push, but they did scrape the uh, Hot 100 with a gentleman named Danny Hollian, who did a song titled Colorado. Yeah, let's listen to a song. So again, from Tumbleweed Records, this label, Colorado by Danny Hollian, whom you've mentioned. Colorado, Colorado, beautiful place that you are. Feel the sorrow of tomorrow before you go very far. Listen to the calling of the wilderness, crying for a human soul to feel. Feeling for a love and natural tenderness. Sympathy for all things that are real. I like how you can hear the wilderness in that song. Colorado by Danny Holian from 1972. Why did Tumbleweed Records close after just about two years? They ran out of money. That okay. aforementioned million dollars from <laughs> Gulf and Western uh, without a hit. They put out these beautiful packages, die-cut album covers. Just remarkable. Actually won a Grammy Award for packaging. Never for packaging? F- never for the music, but, <laughs> uh, but the packaging. So, What can you tell us about Danny Holian? A kid from Minnesota, actually, and uh, came to town played for Simzik. Bill did not produce his record, but said, hey, let's make an album and got him in the right situation. And he uh, got to play with all the greats that they assembled and then uh, was out of the business shortly thereafter. There was a compilation released of songs out of that record label. Yes. Out of Uh, Tumbleweed. It it came out earlier this year and a wonderful – uh, compilation. Sadly, Albert Collins is not included. They could not get the rights from his estate. The great bluesman, uh, he made a record that Simzik did produce, but uh, not represented. And I regret that. The blues guitarist. Mm-hmm. I should point out that even though Tumbleweed Records didn't last very long, Bill Simzik did pretty well for himself, went on to produce albums for the Eagles, including Hotel California. And uh, you can hear an interview with Simzik at the Colorado Music Experience website, which we're talking about with G. Brown. I wonder if if this project, it's it's a nonprofit endeavor, is really just you putting everything you know online or if you've made discoveries yourself. I mean, you've covered music now 
for decades in Colorado. Did you have epiphanies doing this? They're ongoing. Huh. Uh, and certainly uh, keeping track of the contemporary scene is uh, equally challenging. I want to represent everyone in our community, not specific to genre or era. So, yeah, it's a, it's a slow build, but we're going to try to get to everybody. Even current musicians, sure. I think is what I hear you saying. Although uh, people that uh, are still writing their history, so to speak, yeah. uh, might have to be a little patient while we get to the people who uh, need to be represented sooner than later while we've got them. Thanks so much for being with us. Really appreciate it, Jay. Could I send people to colomusic.org? Well, why don't we send them, if they don't remember that, they can go to cpr.org later today where we'll post a link. Even better. To the Colorado Music Experience website. And G. Brown is curator and executive director. Colorado, Colorado, bye, 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 bye. Colorado, Colorado, bye, 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 bye. That's Colorado Matters. Bye-bye. Bye-bye-bye-bye.